Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening from. I'm John Brandt, Director of Professional Practices and Innovation here at ISACA, and this is CyberPros. Joining me today is my good friend, Dr. Zero Trust, Chase Cunningham. Uh, second time I've had him on the show here in 2022. Super excited. Chase, if you would, uh, just give a little bit of background for people who have not had the pleasure of listening to you. Uh, yep. So retired uh, Navy chief, uh, did my time in a whole bunch of different roles. That's where I knew John from. Uh, I worked for the federal government after that. I was a forester analyst for a few years. So I think that makes me part of like a recovery group. And then uh, since then, I've been consulting on my own at a variety of organizations. Awesome. So earlier this year, Chase, you authored a paper on zero trust, right? And we and we'd always kind of envisioned that kind of being the high level and then drilling down. And, and during that project, you expressed some interest in tackling the data side of this, right? And data is king, right? And we're going to talk about a little bit part of that. So right on the heels, right? Literally, because uh, just earlier this week, uh, August 2nd, we released Defending Data Smartly, your most recent white paper um, that you helped us publish here. And, you know, one of the things right out of the gate is I, what I love about you, Chase, is you're, you're data driven, right? So you go find some sometimes obscure sources. <laughs> and right there in the introduction, right, you talk about that, you know, some industry watchers estimate by 2025, collective data of humanity will reach 175 zettabytes. I didn't even know that was a thing. Like that's a lot of data. 21 zeros. Like who counts yeah. that high? Somebody with too much time on their hands. <laughs> Obviously. So, but we open, you know, you used a um an analogy, right? And there was a and there was an FBI case, you know, that you referenced, right? I Willie Sutton, right? So if you yeah. would like, why is that relevant to this paper in this situation? Well, the quote is from Willie Sutton when he was being interviewed about why he kept robbing banks and without missing a beat, he goes, well, that's where the money is. And the FBI just kind of goes, okay, true, fair. So, I mean, it's you know pretty clear that's what's up. And I think that that's the thing that we continued uh, and I see in the industry is that we continue to kind of guess like, oh my gosh, how do we solve this problem? Why are people going after networks? There's this, it, it's because the data is the valuable asset. I mean, this is where we go back all the way to the early days of ZT. Um, that's that's the value proposition in the cyber sort of kill chain that I think a lot of people have missed. At the end of the day, and I, I think this is a hill I'm willing to die on, all cybersecurity is in some way, shape, or form about data security. And we still suck at data security, to be perfectly frank. No, I listen, there's no doubt about that. You know, at least in in what makes the problem even more challenging, right, is just there's not a lot of commonality about with when it comes to legislation and or other rules or you know that manifests itself like in, in compliance or whatnot. But we look at here, especially within the United States, and why I'm such a skeptic about if we'll ever see any real meaningful data privacy laws, because at least in this one guy's opinion, right, is if we think about like TV and messaging and manipulation, right, like TV commercials, right, we're going to we're going to come up with an ad to convince you why to buy something. And now we like the advent of the modern data landscape and information. 
we are collecting so much data and telling on ourselves more so than anything else, right? And, and you describe some different parts here, which make characteristics that makes data valuable. Do you want to touch on a couple of those? Yeah, well, I think the one of the ones that was really interesting for me is I was doing the research for this paper, which honestly, this is probably one of my top three papers I've ever written, just because I got to kind of like validate my own uh, hypotheses, which is always fun. Um, but the the stuff about American Airlines, basically during the pandemic, when they realized no one was going to be flying anymore and they needed money to bolster the airline and float it through the, the worst of the pandemic, they basically mortgaged the data that they had on consumers, on people using American Airlines as an asset to get more funding. And when you think about that, that's like crazy that that happened because your data, most people would say, is not a it's not a tangible asset like my house. But they were able to get billions of dollars in funding from banks and organizations because they said we have really valuable data that could be used to drive the business. This is what it is, and this is what we have. Give us money for it, and that that's a, a, a watershed, game changing moment in my opinion. Like you're beginning to see the real value of data that people didn't necessarily thought was valuable for the purposes of business commerce. So on that thought, and I, and I found that to be extremely intriguing myself, but based on your perspective and your landscape, right? You're, you know, you've been an analyst, you know, the stuff that you continue to do out there, do we really think we're at that watershed market or is that a little bit of some desperation by the market and like what we've seen with some bad business practices that led to like housing collapse in the past and stuff? Yeah, I mean, well, that's part of the problem too, right? Is now we've given all these organizations another way to get the bailout that they can need. Because if I'm a big organization and let's say I've got really crappy accounting practices and I do shady stuff, or whatever else, I still have potentially got all of this super valuable data that comes from customers that have put their faith in me. And I could use that to get my corrupt organization more money to continue to float my corrupt business. And I did a briefing recently with some members of Congress on this. The eyes in the room got about that big because they were like, well, wait a minute, that's that's a problem. And my, my response to them was, uh-huh. Have we figured out that this is a real thing yet? Yeah, like it's so disturbing on so many points, right? Because for one is, you know, we talk about like dark patterns in, in the privacy realm, right? And how we're largely all held hostage if we want to use an electronic device or an application, right? We don't, the, the, we can't, oftentimes, we can't self-select what we are giving access to. It's an all or nothing, right? Very binary one or zero. And, and that's so frustrating, right? Because if people truly understood the magnitude and the footprinting that's happening, Right. And, and, you know, for you and I and, and anybody else that's been in operational type roles, especially within the military intelligence community, like we understand this in practice. That's how bad guys have been gotten. Right. Is we're collecting a lot of, you know, otherwise benign information. Yeah. I mean, I can I can build people. I can build you based on your digital profile and then I can use that and manipulate that and etc. And it's like you said, it's an uncomfortable thing for people to realize that that's the state that we're in. But it's part of the conversation. And the other thing that was um, notable 
was when I was looking at the privacy laws and regulations, and I cited in the paper, there's 46 different privacy laws right now in a country with 50 states. So tell me how interoperability survives and exists and is applicable when you have 46 different statutes in 50 different states. Well, that lends it. So, the, you know, where that leads me to, though, is which at what point does the does the late data inherit a particular privacy law or any law for that aspect? Right. Is it where it's created? Is it where it is at that moment in time? Is it where it's stored? Like, again, we've got such a mess going on right now with this. Yeah, no, no electron has ever gotten to the border of Virginia and turned around and came back to me. Right. I mean, that's just not possible. And if you somebody that might have a problem grasping this, imagine if I said, if you want to travel to any other state in the country, you need 46 different driver's license and you have to abide by 46 different regulations on your vehicle to certify it that you can drive it in that state. You would be like, this is insane. We're doing that in digital space, but we're doing that with stuff that travels at the speed of light and that is generated Literally, we generate more data per day than we did in the entire 19th century. Yeah, it, it's such a challenging problem, right? And uh, and we could talk about this initial segment. We're not even through the first half of the first <laughs> page, right? Like, but what I love most about our conversations in the writings, you know, is that we love challenging assumptions, right? Like, we know that the market is full of a lot of solutions that were created that fell short. Right, at the end of the day. And so in this one, right, you you talk about DLP. And so if, if you would, right, let's just high level thoughts on, you know, original intention, the promises it, it aimed to go at and why why it's largely fallen short. So DLP originally was just an idea of like, look, we can scan through emails because there was in the 90s. That's how old this stuff is in the 90s. A lot of problems with people getting things going on in emails, which there still are today. But they decided, let's come up with this technology that you could not send things that you shouldn't be able to send within emails. And sounds like a good idea conceptually. However, for anyone that's ever operated on a DLP enabled system, it's a sledgehammer when what you need is a chainsaw to really deal with the volume and veracity of the data bouncing around. So that that issue continues to be pervasive. The other side is the care and feeding of the DLP beast. Uh, it's like that uh, plant from the Little Shop of Horrors where it just keeps getting bigger and uglier all the time. And someone has to keep feeding that thing meat to keep it happy. Um, you need an entire staff to run most DLP systems. And it's just cost prohibitive, especially when it's no longer enterprises that are doing IT and cyber stuff. It's everybody everywhere. Yeah, you know, and one of the things here, I'm just a quick point, right, is, uh, you know, you write DLP strategically relies on an organization's ability to classify data and apply protections. And, and when we look at something, you know, we're, we're focused on data right now. We know how poorly organizations are when it comes to IAM in general, right? Like, and who has access to what? So to me, there, there's a larger challenge here is if you're, you just highlighted the enormous effort it takes to effectively manage this. But if you cannot ever classify the data to begin with, and, and those that are generating the data are not the ones that are responsible for protecting it, oftentimes, then we really have, have a, a huge issue here. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's just it's not that it was ill intentioned, but it was just a problematic. And 
from my own battle scars working in an organization that spent $800,000 to get a DLP engine working and then literally tossed it out the window and said, we're, we're, we're scrapping this. It's expensive. Well, I would argue, though, that there's promise the fact that they were willing to have a sunk cost there because how many solutions are still remaining in place because there's financial officers and executive teams that refuse to walk away from investments that don't deliver on uh, intended value. Well, it's probably just because I'm a really crappy admin is why it failed, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, right? Um, need to know and principal least privilege, right? We, like those two things underpin everything we do, right? Like, and it's so frustrating to me if we look at, you know, a tie back, I always try to tie back to our state of cybersecurity report, right? And in that report where we drilled into soft skills, the bottom two skills that the respondents felt were important was honesty and empathy. If we look at the, the preponderance of things that we contend with, and now we're like, yeah, we don't really think honesty is important. And, and empathy, why is empathy? Why do we care about that? Like, you know, so... It's no wonder this whole thing is a mess because security teams are largely still challenged dealing with the business units who they're supposed to be partnering with to help them help themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, that we don't, uh, we should not be the department of no, but we should be the department of no as in new opportunity, right? That's what we want to give businesses. The moment you can give them new opportunities, the better things go for me organizations that I work with, my standing rule is you can say no, but you have to have an alternative solution before you tell me no. Right. Well, and doesn't that pertain to requirements gathering, right? At the end of the day, like, you know, and I think, you know, in a, in a market that we're in and tons of solutions that are out there, at the end of the day, like before you even go to a vendor, do you know what you need? Do you know what your business units need? Like, conceptually plain language what problem are you trying to solve right i hear you say that you t you talk about that a lot and i think that's something that's often missing yeah this um the the days of us being able to kind of just force security down people's throats because we're the security people and we know more than them that's not going to fly anymore especially since the economy's decided to go uh the way of the dodo i mean we have to be more uh open about the business conversations well, and I would also offer in a very transient industry like we have, like, and you have IT or security people that have gotten burned out, they've gone into different areas, or, you know, even somebody like myself that was operational at one point, and now I feel a different capacity, but I know, you know, at the end of the day, like when you're trying to implement things now on the, in the business sense of things, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work here in this context, right? And so it does make me, I remember I had this epiphany not long after I joined ISACRA. I was like, boy, I really messed up a lot of things in my first security management job. Like, you know, you don't talk about it, especially back then, however many years ago, it wasn't, hey, go talk to the customer. It was, here's this rule, mandate, whatever, go enforce it. Right, which is, I'm going to use it as a segue to the next part in the paper where, you know, and, and I love this again, another part of it, right? Compliance or this trying to be compliant does not equal being secure, right? So, again, if you were to, you know, share your thoughts on that and where 
where were we continue to fall down? Yeah, I mean, well, and I was really glad that I got to write that in there because um, there's a misconception that compliant equals secure. Compliance is the bar. It's not the ceiling. Uh, I remind people that compliance is a seatbelt on a 747. I have to have it to back away from the gate. I need it in case we're in some turbulence and my head doesn't bounce off the ceiling. However, if everything goes to hell, a three-inch strip of nylon at 500 miles an hour is not going to make me walk away. Like that's what compliance is, and that's how people should think about it. And I, I cited a lot of really specific things in that paper to say, here's this organization that was compliant two weeks before they were breached. Here's another organization that was compliant a day before they were breached. And then I listed literally organizations, breaches, compliance initiative. I mean, it's it was for again, I really love this paper because it was a uh, for me, it was like a Perry Mason moment. I was dropping those things in front of the judge going like, you know, there it is. I don't know how to make it any clearer to you. So what you know, and again, when you and I talk, and I think this is why, you know, if people who can relate it to other industries and use other examples, this is where it adds value. And something you just said, it reminded me, right, of, of my alter ego, right? You know, remodeling, John, right? Building codes are the minimum standard. Minimum standard does not work, right, at the end of the day, because whatever's minimum today is not going to survive a year or two from now. We, we see that with materials. And I think in an industry where we largely like to reinvent the wheel, we could have learned a lot of lessons from other areas. And, and I think, you know, the call outs in there uh, uh, with compliance and, uh, you know, and you are rightfully hesitant to be like, boy, I'm not sure if this is going to fly, right? Because compliance is a big piece of security, right? And there's and there's a lot of good stuff out there, but it's also, I think that we're in a time and we've been seeing this transition for a bit. The focus is risk-based, right? Risk-based security is where it's at. We're largely getting folks there. Obviously, compliance is an underlying piece of it, and you have to have something to measure against. But it's also not the easy button. And, and, and as you described with, with your uh, airplane example, you're absolutely right. It's not going to be all encompassing because no two businesses are operated the same. Infrastructure is all the same. I mean, it's different. Like very few things are similar anymore. Yeah. And I think part of it, too, that sticks in, in it for me is if you accept that there's a reality that you're operating in an inherently dangerous space and you accept that adversaries are trying to get into your systems, no one, in my knowledge, on any dark web forum has ever said, uh-oh, we should stop because they have PCI compliance, right? They, If anything, they know that the insurance and compliance means you're probably resting on your laurels and there's some other way that they can get in. So I, I think that, that that gets lost in the mix, too, is... This concept of of never compromise, perfect defense, it doesn't exist. It should really be about applying the controls where the likelihood of compromise lives and in manners in which the adversary can no longer be successful. So, and you bring up a good point, right? Is So if you know what the mandates that a particular company falls victim to, it provides you a good source of information because a lot of that stuff is readily available out there. Yeah. We know what the standards say. Oftentimes, you know what the preferred controls are. It's, and then all, then on top of it, now we tie into if you have any kind of insider knowledge and have worked or know people who work in there to actually drill down a little bit further, all of a sudden, now you can be a little bit more surgical. You're not swinging the sledgehammer. You're going in there with a little scalpel. You know exactly what you need to do to achieve whatever you know bad stuff you're trying to affect. 
And there's, I mean, there's a benefit, honestly, um, my goal ultimately is to work as much as I can with end users and consumers of this technology, not with the vendor space. And if we think about it too, in that way, well, ultimately, if I'm subscribing to try and solve for everything all the time, who does that benefit? It benefits the vendors selling you the everything all the time solutions, not you actually solving the problems. Because the, the problems, this is one of the only spaces in warfare where the adversary literally says what they're going to do. And then you ignore what they told you they're going to do and go, I wonder how this happened. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, no easy solutions here, but a, the right mindset and understanding what you're trying to protect, which, you know, we talk about, you know, and even here within ISACA, like privacy is its own practice area, but there's a lot of overlap with security. Very, you know, more times than not, you can't decouple the two. You know, that was another main section. And I mentioned a little while ago, you know, on these dark patterns that exist and everything. And largely the end user is at the beck and call, right? Like we're just at the mercy of those that create these solutions. So in a world that where businesses are relying on off the shelf stuff and buying products, buying services, What's this look like in practice right now? How are, you know, from, from your work that you're out there with clients and different things, what's the intersection between the two? Are, are there any good, you know, short-term success stories yet? Yeah, I mean, um, privacy stuff is coming along. I think uh, what, what is interesting is people are finally starting to get the idea that if I want to be private, I have to be able to close a door and you know, if my I have teenagers, right, they don't want to talk to me. The first thing to do is shut the door. That's the same thing that we're trying to get across to everybody is I and for the record, since I'm on ISACA, which has all this stuff and super, super awesome people, I believe in compliance and I believe in privacy. The point that we're trying to make is there is an intercoupling of those two things and you cannot necessarily enable one without the other being impacted. So, you know, being aware that this that there's a requirement for more is is notable and the the organizations that are building applications that are shipping product they're not security is not the first thing they're doing they want to push things out and do what everybody else does and grow business that's how it's going to happen you know and that's a good segue to right with with Isaka's digital trust initiative right because i think largely that's the the value prop there is we need to look at things as a system right? The system of systems approach, because you can't look at things in isolation. And, and that's where increasingly everything from how you think about things, design things, collect data, you know, tend to customers, all of those things, you know, come into play there. So there was a lot to unpack in here and, and, and we barely scratched the surface of the paper. So for our listeners, you can actually go check out this most recent ISACA paper authored by Dr. Zero Trust himself, Defending Smart Data. Chase, any final points, anything you want to highlight for our listeners of things that we couldn't cover today? Number one, thank you so much for letting me write this paper and for publishing it. And then number two, um, I think people should remember if you're asking about what's the product in this space, you're the product, you're the oil. And that's being leveraged by these organizations, good, bad, and indifferent. And that that's the reality. Remember, you're the product, you're the oil, and that applies to you, your kids, and anything else that touches or sends electrons. Well, I appreciate that. So on that uh, you know, final thoughts there, uh, I want to thank you again for joining us. I look forward to our next opportunity to work together. 
I'm John Brandt. This was CyberPros.